0: You may have never heard of Robert Nicholsberg, but you've likely seen his photos in places like Time, Newsweek, or the Wall Street Journal. Wounded soldiers stumbling towards a rescue helicopter in Guatemala, a sea of migrant miners in Brazil caked in mud climbing out of gold pits, farmers threshing rice in Vietnam after the war's end, and all that before Bob first arrived in Afghanistan in 1988 when he documented the country as the Soviets withdrew. So when Laura needed a photographer to shoot monuments in cultural sites across Afghanistan for a State Department-supported book project, Bob seemed to be the man for the job. In this episode, Laura and I talked to Bob about what it takes to make a good picture, avoiding the glare of the powerful Afghan sun, melding into the surroundings even with a massive camera around your neck, making the monuments come alive by including the people who surround them rather than cropping them out and the most agonizing decision of all, choosing the right paper to print the photos. As Bob explains, it's all about the paper. This is Monuments Woman with Laura Tedesco. I'm your host, George Gavrilis. If you're new to this podcast, we recommend going back to start with episode one. For everyone else, welcome back. Let's jump in. Your first trip to Afghanistan was in early 1988. This was a significant time to be in the country. Najibullah was still in power. He was the Soviet backed ruler of Afghanistan. And the Soviets had not yet begun withdrawal from the country. It was a rest of time, I think. I mean, the Mujahideen are fighting the Soviets. Pakistan's ISI, its intelligence services are operating all over the country. And there's also a movement to unite Pashtuns across the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. Wow. What what a time to be there. Tell us about it. It was
1: January of 1988, and there was a funeral of a Afghan nationalist, Guffer Abdul Khan. I believe he was anti-partition. He died in Peshawar and and his last wish was to be buried in Jalalabad. And the Soviets were still in power in January of 88. And that border at Torkum was always closed. And the last thing they wanted was media to come in. So they gave media a one day visa. I think it was January 16th, 1988. Media could come in to Jalalabad by car through the Khyber Pass, Spetsnaz Special Forces were all over the place because President Najibullah attended, another Pashtun nationalist, just for the burial. So we were met at the uh, early, on the eastern side of Nangahar and came up for the ceremony, never having been there legally, because everybody from the media would cross illegally to walk with the Mujahideen at that period, and the Soviets were not happy about that. You had to get your Afghan visa at the Soviet embassy in New Delhi. So the Afghans may have had an embassy, but you went to the Soviet consulate to get your visa. That's how it it worked. And they weren't happy about giving visas to journalists in New Delhi at the Soviet embassy. In any case, we had a one-day visa. About halfway through the funeral ceremony, two massive explosions in the parking lot, say at the other end of the soccer field where are the buses, buses were coming in from Pakistan. And this was a big security risk for the, the Soviets because where was the opposition but in Pakistan? Uh, Al-Qaeda, early days, were in Peshawar. So they knew everybody coming from Peshawar was anti-Soviet, anti-Najibullah. So was ISI there. But these explosions were massive. And everyone fled immediately, including my driver, I, I had no idea where our car was. And it was a white Toyota, and 99% of the cars were white Toyotas. It blew out everybody's windscreen. So my reporter said his car was full. The bureau chief said, no, you, you better find your driver. I eventually just jumped into a car that was empty. He went up to shower, and uh, he had no windscreen. We drove back three hours at night with no windscreen, he was a pashtun we had about three words in english he was stoned out of his mind and you could barely <laughs> see i mean his eyes were so closed that i don't know how we made it down the khyber to peshawar alive so 16 people died 16 that was my first trip and and it it was a rock and roll you know, roller coaster
0: ever since Quite the introduction to Afghanistan. But that's an indication of what it was like there at that point. Here's a question for you. As a photographer, I'd love to understand your instinct. At a moment like that, when bombs have gone off at an event, is your instinct to go somewhere safe or is it to pick up the camera and start shooting? The latter. Start shooting. I don't like running away from
1: situations. That's not why I'm there. put it simply if you can find a, a quick way to deconflict this mediate this situation there's usually a way you can quickly see if 98 99% of the people are running that way and there's one or two going forward they know something so follow them until you don't feel right and then look for the smoke and is there a straight line to it do you have to go behind a tree rock or house whatever I didn't know it was in a bus. I found out later in the news reports that somebody had placed bombs in some of the buses from Pakistan, but that could have been Afghan intelligence trying to screw the Pakistanis or make it appear as though it wasn't them. They were clever. But I don't have many pictures of that particular thing because it did get hairy. And fa- in a sense, I'm not walking back to Peshawar <laughs> through the Khyber Pass. You know, I-, I better find a car. So at that point, you have to drop the camera and say, "Let's be, you know, rational here." And if you're the last person there, you're going to be the first one picked up by the by the Afghan intelligence people, and and as a foreigner, so I I, I jumped on that. Thankfully, we could avoid all that trouble in in two thousand sixteen. I was starting to get tired of chasing car bombs. It's not a lot of fun. And they cleverly would have a second bomb 15 minutes after the first one. And they'd wait till people came in. Again, very often journalists. And then another bomb would go off. Being first to a situation later on in, in the 2000s was not a good idea. So you, but you have to process all that too. It, it, it requires uh, relying on a lot of instincts for self-preservation and
0: luck. So, Bob, back in episode 10, Lori and I spoke about the book, Afghanistan's Heritage, Restoring Spirit in Stone. She brought you on board to take photos for the book. So why don't you tell us the story of the book from your eyes? Where's a good place to start? What made you want to say yes to what was ultimately a public diplomacy project?
1: I have this background in FSA, WPA, photography from the 30s and 40s that helped form a baseline for me on what could be done with outside support for photography. And that was also a period that was politically inspired to have these programs That would benefit a lot of people, but there was a lot of political opposition to programs like that. I realized that I should investigate this particular one because it was not political in the goal of of illustrating and, and documenting all of the monuments and institutions that Laura had in mind. Some of these projects that are underway, some that are finished and functioning. On the surface, I, I was 100% in on that alone, where I didn't have to work with a reporter. I didn't have a, a weekly or Friday deadline. Shipping film was out. you know, All that background I had in, in making sure my pictures got to the main uh, desk. Uh, this was a way to blueprint design a project properly, given the amount of time. What's the right week not the right week it, August is the best month to be in Afghanistan and we had that luxury of scheduling when the, the sky is blue every single day you don't have flight issues in August usually in Afghanistan so I could get to each one of the places that Laura had on the list I was able to find and, and uh, secure the right guide translator Of course, this is all uh, collaborating and discussing with Laura about what it would require. I think we riffed on this for hours about what it would take. When I looked at the number of legal notepads that I had gone through, writing notes from each conversation that we'd have, and then we'd have another conversation in three days, I'd have to go back to that page. Ah, remember that idea, because there were so many things to consider at that time for that part of the State Department, which I always thought was underrated by journalists. Never enough coverage. Short-form journalism never really worked on how the cultural support mechanism worked, say, in Brazil or in Peru. Uh, It was always the military or the political upheavals that took away the headline. And, And it... It pushed aside the cultural and the historical story, which I know people would be interested in if they had a chance to read it. But in order to read it, it has to be put together. So this was, I felt, a legitimate, sophisticated way of putting a project together. And we knew we would have uh, equal access to the texts. Perhaps if we had a disagreement, we could iron it out and finesse it properly. The picture editing, I wanted to be fully responsible for. I didn't want it to have it be interpreted through a picture editor. remember, George, I'd send in 10 rolls of film unseen, unprocessed, and the lucky people in New York had to go through it and find one. I had no say in the matter. I could tell them if it was the wrong picture because the caption doesn't go along with the story. But in this case, we had full control, and... Not to pat ourselves on the back here, we we put a lot of effort and brainpower into pulling it off.
0: So, Laurie, how did you and Bob find each other?
2: Bob was giving a talk at the State Department um, on his first book on Afghanistan. I attended the talk because I was interested in the topic I was also kind of evaluating whether I thought Bob would be a good partner for me on working on what I knew was going to be a very big project. So I attended the book talk. I don't think Bob knew I was in the audience. I'm sure he didn't. But then I think we had lunch afterwards, Bob, and we got a chance to sort of chat a little bit. I think it took me maybe a month or so before I got around to asking you if you would be interested to work on this project.
0: Did you like each other instantly or was it a work in progress?
1: Bob <laughs> did, no it, it was fine it was it was a you know eff- it was Wait fine a minute. Hang on.
0: Lori sure is laughing a lot instead of answering.
1: Hang on. That that Laura, Laura's laugh is, is, is I'm not, not going to read between laughter here. Um it's genuine. But You know, the lunch afterwards where we sat in the State Department cafeteria, you know, there wasn't even a tablecloth. You know, it was food on a tray. And and the people who set up that particular U.S. State Department event were the ones who picked up the tab for that and actually said, you know, let's get about eight people together. And Hannah and Laura, Hannah's our mutual friend, attended. Hannah had been based in Islamabad, so we had similar foundation in the region. The adrenaline for me, talking about 25 years of Afghan history, this is sensitive territory, you know. uh, Mujahideen, Al-Qaeda, 9-11, all that stuff is wrapped into the book. The questions were carefully asked of me in that book discussion. I had to come down a little bit for that lunch. So Laura was one of eight people at the table. And it was very pleasant. You know, she didn't spill her glass of water. She didn't, uh, you know, <laughs> yawn. I'm joking.
0: Why don't we talk about some of the pictures in the book?
1: But wait a minute, Laura. Laura didn't yeah. say didn't have her uh, impression. Well, her answer about- was
0: her suspicious laugh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if you want to answer, Laura, go ahead. Now's your chance.
2: Yeah. No. No. I no. Yeah, definitely. I liked Bob. I liked his talk a lot, um, the way he spoke about his pictures. The lunch was fine. Um, he didn't spill his glass of water. He didn't yawn. It was good. I, though I think that as we were building the foundation for the project, in my recollection, at least, there were a couple of times I asked myself where I was like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work out, that my language about it and your language. We hadn't found enough of a common language.
0: What typifies that?
2: Well, here's just one example. Bob was asking me for a shot list. In my head, we had four conversations already, and I was talking about the sites. In my head, that constituted a shot list. I didn't understand exactly what Bob needed. And it took me a while to figure out. Concurrent with Thus, really building this project, I was also traveling constantly. I mean, in the span of six months, I think I was in Karachi, Colombo, Kabul, back and forth. So I I wasn't able to give this project 100% of my focus, probably when it needed more focus than I could give it at the time. Anyway, but now what is it? It's like, yeah, it's years later. We're friends. For sure.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, then then this is my cue to jump to the pictures. Yes. Yeah. Just uh, tell us about that lovely cover photo, the one of the Citadel in Herat and the marketplace around it.
1: There's a lot that goes into finding a a cover shot. And and in and of itself, it's, it's a bit intimidating to have that over your head as a photographer. Very often you find a cover shot in in a place that you didn't intend to find one. I had been to this particular spot in Herat the night before when they have a night market. So all the lights are on. Uh, the, The citadel above it may have had a few spotlights on it, but it didn't have that prominence, that sort of looming prominence that it does in the daylight picture. I realized that the night market went around the perimeter of the fortress, but where was the most amount of foot traffic? The nuts and dry fruits, that's going to be one of the busiest places, no matter what. That and the fresh vegetable stands.
2: Bob, wasn't it right before Eid also? It was like right before an Eid holiday, so the markets were especially busy.
1: Yes, part of our need for more time may have been based on that we couldn't find anything for 3 4 days but in any case with the guide and translator also a good journalist i've just parked myself on a railing in this position and just waited 10 15 minutes to see and and there're a lot of outtakes to this because the, the fellow you see in front of the three wheel taxi on the left would be in the middle, but that would not be the right position. So you had to take almost film it and and get the right coming and going from right to left, left to right. And the kids I didn't really see until that night. I didn't see them in the car. I did, sort of, at at the lower side of my view of this frame. The woman in the back seat in the shadows on the right side of the car that I didn't see until weeks later when I re-edited this and sent cover possibilities to Laura to see which one would check off the boxes that were needed for a good representation of a lot of effort and funding and manual labor into a project that would relate well to a foreign audience.
2: Yeah, I had to get the cover photo approved by about nine different people Bob, you and I narrowed it down to maybe three possibilities for a cover photo. And then, as I was trying to sort of shield you from some of the sausage making of all the clearances and kind of advocacy and discussions that happened behind the scenes to put what is a kind of unorthodox project like this book together, I remember having extensive discussions with people in the State Department as to why they liked a picture or didn't like a picture. And it's the best one for the cover. Are you happy with that picture, Bob? Absolutely. Yeah, good.
1: We had to turn a horizontal into a vertical, and, and that's, and for any art department, uh, that's tricky. You have to have that empty space above to put your title and logo and whatever. But it, it continues to get my attention when it's lying on a table gussied up in reds and neon and, and it, your eye goes to a lot of different places within the frame There's, you see it differently each time you do look at it like a carpet or jazz or a painting
0: This was like you were saying a very different project for you, a very different beast. So, what what did you learn about Afghanistan in the process of doing this?
1: Certainly, spots that I put my fresh eyes onto that I never expected to get to, not or have the time to devote to, not just a drive-by, you know, thirty seconds, and then we got to get to the airport kind of moment. We we could get to to a location morning noon night again second time too and that is really how you put a, a really strong story or document together first impressions are important but then you see it and develop it if I'd moved two inches over, over to the right and one hour later in the day yet you would toss that out of your mind on a say a journalism mission you didn't you just couldn't afford that. An hour, you had to be somewhere else. So these were locations that I could devote the proper amount of time to. You get the most amount of traffic and the most amount of activity, drama. A market, for instance, is all day, but Eid generates a lot of foot traffic. At the shrines themselves, people take them very seriously and go into this sort of silent meditative mode when they enter and you try not to disturb them while you're working and let things flow naturally and, and that was the beauty of being able to go back again on a second day to see if it was empty of people well you, you I could work differently with a with a mosaic for instance if there were people crossing the area that I needed to set up a tripod you don't want people walking through it all the time so again the options were to my benefit to uh, exploit differently than I normally would as a journalist.
0: There's a very striking photo, many striking photos, but I think it's a photo that you love very much as well, Lori, of women pilgrims in the north at Haji Piyade, a very famous site abutting adjacent to Nogunbad. How do you show up at the entrance to a women's shrine and photograph them while being invisible? What do you have to do to cloak yourself?
1: Be patient, put the camera down. As people come in, don't shock them. You wait till they take their spot and go into sort of this prayer mode where they don't see anything other than what's on their mind at that time. And what's on their mind better not be you. And I'm a male and mostly female presence that has its own subtleties and nuances. It's watching the flow of of humankind as they approach a place with such respect and yet tradition. You know that small child that is with them now, maybe in 20 years, will be coming back bringing their children. It is a, a real important, significant part of their daily life that is rugged challenging just to put food on the table yet this is their period to themselves and this is also part of their spiritual medicine there's the clinical side and there's a the spiritual side so this was the spiritual side of their life and and you had an inside seat to it don't blow it don't drop something you know don't light up a cigarette you know i mean not that i would but There are people I've seen do that, you know, and just, it's not the place for it. Show equal amount of respect and knowledge and study, and you'll be able to uh, spend a quality moment there with them.
0: And what I noticed about the photo is that the women are going about their business. They're laser focused on the shrine but their children are all looking at you and smiling, just beaming. Is that generally how children are? Are they very curious when a guy shows up with a camera? They
1: photobomb all the time. I mean, it's awful.
0: (laughs) I can't tell you how many frames we had to
1: toss and and I didn't see it at the time until, is that kid doing at the ankle level, looking at me with a smile. It just ruined the great serious mood of that picture. But that's innocence there, you know, that's genuine. They'd rather be playing in the sandbox, you know, rather than being dragged along. At the same time, they were being uh, taught and imprinted there about uh, what we do on a Thursday or, you know, where they go on the way to the market. They zip off and, and stop at the shrine. And this is where they maybe meet other people, you know, that they normally wouldn't see in the course of a day. At the shrine, this is like the water pump, you know, where everyone lines up to get their bucket of water in the villages. That's where the communication is. And it can be surreptitious if something is wrong for a neighbor that's not spoken about while there are men around.
2: There's definitely only women at the shrine. And I think all the children with them happen to be girls in the picture. That's right. And that's another layer of the significance of a space like that shrine that's really a special place for women. It becomes known to the girls as a safe place for them to go. Where you just referenced surreptitious, it's a place where women can not only go to pray, but where they can go to exchange information that may not be safe to exchange in the presence of others. But that touches on such a connecting thread to every picture in the book and something that was very much part of the vision of making the book with Bob. These monuments, these sites, these historical places in Afghanistan very much remain on the lived psychological, social, cultural landscape of Afghans now. Nogambad, the site... What is it? It's 8th, ninth century, so it's well over a 1,000 years old. The Shrine Haji Piata, I think it's 16th century. So we're talking about sites that are hundreds of years old that are still very significant for Afghans right now.
1: So the woman sitting on the uh, bench at Concert Grand Piano, Uh, struck me as as something way off the normal orbit that you'd come across uh, a student in a school. When you walk into that National Music Institute, you hear sounds of cellos, trumpets, maybe even, I don't think there was a harp there, but just noises that you would never hear anywhere else in Kabul or in Afghanistan, for that matter. And I went back a number of times at different times of the day to find that when they practice or when they're instructed or when they have access to that piano, because that girl would have to give up that bench for somebody else to come in. But also to see a Yamaha piano in a a place that you're lucky to have, you know, anything newer than a 1995 Toyota, everything about that environment there was hyper real for me including her ability to play with both hands with proper posture and my mother trained as a concert pianist for a while in her life too so i I have this in my mind we grew up with a concert piano in our house and it it's a place of honor and not everybody gets to sit there and play on the 88 keys this woman, with all the violence that she faces on coming to school and on the way home from school, this was a very peaceful, enlightened moment. The peace would last long enough that she could actually have another language, not just Dari Pashto, but music as another language. That was unique.
2: We could not have anticipated at the time that Bob took the pictures in the Music Institute, in the National Museum, at at really every site, we could not have anticipated how the significance of the pictures would change, because that National Institute of Music, it's closed. If it were open, there would be no female students in there, not allowed. The picture of the shrine that we were just talking about, Haji Piada, it's just women present, Bob, did you see them walk in with male relatives escorting them? I don't th- he di- he's shaking his head no. I don't think they would be allowed to go from their homes into the shrine by themselves now.
0: How much did the paper that you used for the book cost?
2: I don't remember the cost of the paper. Here's what I remember. Bob was never happy with any of the paper samples he was getting. And it took what felt like months and months of Bob being extremely picky on the paper. And then I remember seeing the cost of the paper and being like, oh, Jesus, all right, But we made it work. Bob knew how important the paper was. Therefore, I was not going to argue with him about it. But I don't remember the price of the paper. I just remember Bob was not going to settle for anything that was not above excellent.
0: What makes for good paper in the eyes of a photographer like yourself? What do you look for?
1: First off, is the weight of the paper, how thick it is. And you would take a corner of a page and with your thumb, flip the sharp 90 degree and how it flips back and forth. You certainly don't want it to crease, for instance. You want something that holds up. And that paper is attached to a binding. So when you ask about paper, George, you also have to eventually talk about the binding. This particular paper also absorbs ink better than a a paper of less quality, and those colors, given the amount of time we spent on the digital files, demand, in my mind, a good paper. We're not sparing the blacks. We're not going to spare the reds. We, And I want to be on press. This particular press agreed to having me there as the sheets were coming off to approve it. You understand something we take very much for granted in, in picking up a book. What goes into making a better book? and that paper zantur you listed on the back page of credits so people understand that this wasn't just an, a random choice we wanted this to be known that a thought and concern for every inch millimeter of the book was taken into consideration and that includes the quality
0: of paper yeah there's one thing I learned through this book and that is that afghans do not slouch oh my god these people have straight backs
2: that's a really cool observation george i hadn't noticed that
0: oh my goodness even the kids backs straight as boards the guy that you mentioned on the moped or the motorcycle outside of the citadel of herat it's unreal how straight his back is <laughs> <laughs> So with that, this has been fun. You've been listening to Monuments Woman with Laura Tedesco. I'm your host, George Gavrilis. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To stay in touch, also follow us on Instagram at The Monuments Woman. Join us next week when we dive deeper. This show is produced by Christian D. Bruhn and May 11 Project. It is recorded by Autovida Studios and edited by Sean Hedinger and Greg Williams. The theme song is This Love by Ariana Dalawari, featuring Salar Nader.
1: Produced by Audovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.